You're listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. The interview subject that I've got coming up for you, the artist prepared for your listening pleasure. It's Leon Todd from the Western Australian outfit Ragdoll. Now, the reason for the conversation is to promote their brand new single. It's called Russ. It's a sterling affair. Do check that one out. We talk about it through the conversation, as I mentioned, but we talk about a whole bunch of other things too. It's a really cool conversation. You're effectively listening to two musicians dive deep into whatever subjects they feel like diving into over almost two hours. So here he is, Leon Todd. That was easy. No worries. Very, very nice. I got my headphones as well, so... (laughs) All good. Okay, what's been happening, mate, apart from uh, doing what you're doing here with the band? What else else has the day held for you? Uh, I teach guitar, so I had some teaching earlier, and I, um, I make guitar videos for youtube fairly regularly as well so i've been doing a bit of that and a bit of bit of video editing and those kind of things so you know keeping me off the streets yeah what's um use premiere pro or what's the video editing software you use uh i'm a final i'm using final cut Cut, i used to do i I used imovie for an embarrassingly long period of time and (laughs) finally uh hit the ceiling with it and was just like you know what i need to I need to just get the thing that works like this that is better. Yeah, yeah. Well, you start with iMovie, don't you? It's the best place to start, but it can be, it's a bit like Audacity. It can sort of keep you there for an, for a uh, unhealthy, uh, long, unhealthy long period of time, can't it, before you start to branch out into this more sophisticated stuff. I'm in, the, in, my 40, in my 40s, mate, I'm back at uni and I'm learning how to use things like Premiere Pro and Photoshop properly. And uh, you realize, mate, that as much time you want to devote to it is as much time as there is to learn everything that there is there. In other words, it's open-ended. Oh, exactly. And they're just, you know, I'm still, I'm sure you're going through the same thing. You're just on this perpetual like, oh, I didn't realize you can do that. That makes my life a thousand times easier. You have, I have those moments every week. Yeah, it's horrendous from the perspective that, so I'm at Bond Uni, and I got the cloud version, so I got the Adobe cloud version at a discounted rate because I'm a student. But Bond, oh, yeah, right. Bond actually bought a license. They didn't buy the. Um, they they bought the. Uh, is it? What's it? I mean, I bought the cloud version, and they bought the one that's hosted on site. That's the only way I can describe it. So it doesn't have the same uh, updates. So consequently, both of them are different because their version is like yeah. late 2017, and mine is up to today. So. If I look at YouTube clips or clips <laughs> that the uni has for us to actually, or or tutorials that some of the um, tutorials give, t- tutes, tutors gives us, it's different. Mine's different on my laptop because they're all using the, um, a lot of students don't want to pay the 200 bucks per year for the uh, for the cloud suite. But yeah, man, it's, my point is, is that uh, even within the same particular product, they're very different. <laughs> You've just got to spend some time with the bloody thing. There's no other way around it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's it's a, um, there's, the payoff function is very not linear. There's like an incredible amount of work you have to put in to be crap at it. And then, <laughs> and then once That's you can so kind true. of do that, then after a few hundred hours, then you can start to not be totally garbage, like remember, learning an instrument, I guess. Yeah, it's so true though, isn't it? Remember when you first started playing guitar? I play guitar and bass as well, you see, but same with Premiere Pro, it was like the first couple of days I used it, you, you feel really proud of yourself, like as though you've accomplished something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then, like, about... Dude, I played a G chord. How good is this? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly like on the guitar, but about a month later. I'm not too far along from where I was in the first couple of days, and I am ready to punch a wall, metaphorically speaking. I'm like, 
why oh, yeah. can't I figure this out and get things to do? Like, what was I trying to do um, the other day? I think I was trying to get text to fade in and fade out. Fairly straightforward, you'd think. No, <laughs> it took me ages. It took me days to figure out how to do it. Um, and I wanted a particular type of text. Importing the text was not that hard. It was getting it to fade in and fade out and actually move across the screen at the same time. And oh, we, yeah, yep, you know where yep. I'm headed with that. It's bloody hard to get it to do that. I mean, once you've got it down pat, it's probably all right. But God, learning how to and and continuously learning it. Thank God, I continuously learn it. Otherwise, I'd lose. It'd be like when I learn how to free, speak French as a kid, and, for, and I forget it all now. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and for for me, it's like I've got the same five or six things I do with the video side of stuff. So it's, it's not that intensive, but they'll always, you know, once a month, there's something that's just kind of like, how did I do that thing that should, you know, like you said, oh, I totally. want some text to move across the screen. Mm-hmm. I, knew, I, I did it and I thought I'd remember it, but because I'm not doing it all the time, it just goes in one ear out the other. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, my workaround is with that. I video, like I use my iPhone and I actually, do a tut- as soon as I figured something out, I do a tutorial for myself and then go and save it somewhere. Because ah, I'm there bug- you go. Yeah, and th- I can't tell you how often that has saved me from throwing my coffee across the room or wanting to punch a wall. Um, <laughs> it has just been, yeah, honestly, that has been a lifesaver doing that. So if I can give any hints or tips, it is if you think to yourself, I'll remember this, no, you won't. You won't. So videotape it. <laughs> you know, use your iPhone yeah, or your my- Android device to tape it. Yeah, my mantra is that I'm a moron. So, you know, what would, what would, if, if I want to learn something myself, it's just like explain it to the stupidest person you know, which is often me. And it's like, okay, if I can, rem- if I can remember it and I can have it stored somewhere for instant access, then hmm. I'm sure I'll be fine. Well, you're not, you're not that dumb because this, your guitar playing is really good. That was the first thing I noticed about Ragdoll um, is what you're doing here on rust and this is why i found it and you know i'm in my 40s so i've got the full breadth of rock and metal to draw from for this but i think it, i think rust is a menacing slice of machine head era deep purple a bit of earthless in there and of course fu manchu but you break it down into manageable slices of hard rock that god i've had this conversation a few times over the last 48 hours but it really should be played on triple j but it won't because we know how triple j well, maybe we don't. Well, I don't know how Triple J does things. That's half the bloody problem. But music like yours should be there. But would you would you agree with my my statement on who you sound like and what can you add to it? I'm I'm so glad you mentioned all of those bands because um, the band that got me into wanting to be in a band was Deep Purple. Sweet. Um, and obviously, everyone learns Smoke on the Water as their you know it's in the first five. Hmm. that anyone learns on the <laughs> guitar. But um, yeah, I remember my dad had all their albums on vinyl. And um, that was just, it was like the sound of, that was just the background noise for my childhood. And um, hmm. it it kind of seemed like such a no-brainer. It's like, oh, well, okay, I've learned Smoke on the Water. What about what about these other songs that are on this album? And, you know, I remember it was, it was Machine Head and it was Burn. Um, I was going to write Burn Down. Yeah. Yeah, I was tossing up between Burn and Machine Head, honestly, you know, because I know both really well. But I just felt, yeah, I just, I leant more toward Machine Head, but I'm so glad you say Burn as well. Yeah, and I mean, our, our drummer Cam, one of his, he's a massive Kiss freak. Kiss were the band that got him into music, but mm-hmm. he's a big Ian Pace fan as well. And um, the same, obviously, Ryan being a singing bass player, 
you're a singing bass player, then you can't not like Glenn Hughes and you yeah, can't not like Deep Purple. So um, there's a lot of that shared. I think for us, before we, when we were in this, when we were each in the embryonic stage as musicians, I think we were listening to a lot of the same stuff. So it, um, it, it kind of seeps out. And then, so especially for me and Ryan, I remember um, because we've had the, you know, the opportunity to go and play overseas um, and bands like, you know, Fu Manchu and Earthless and The Sword and uh, another great band, I'm not even sure if they're active anymore, Orchid, um, we, there was a lot of that stuff that was like the really hip stuff that people were listening to there that we got turned on to that I wouldn't necessarily have heard over here. There's mm. a lot of great, great Australian heavy bands, but it's like they kind of, they come from a very different place, I find, whether it's you know, your cog and your carnival and things like that. Um, yep. Bands I, I love, but um, they're, yeah, they're sort of coming, they're coming from a very different place, whereas, you know, the bands you mentioned are dirty, filthy guitar bands, which is, uh, which is ultimately what we do just in a very uh, kind of lean cuisine way. <laughs> hey, there's another influence here. I just looked at your uh, your Facebook profile. Probably one of my favourite bands of all time is King's X. Now, I can't say I picked up the influence directly, but now that it's mentioned, I can definitely hear echoes now, of now it that someone, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, now that someone said it, it's like, oh, actually, yeah, they're honestly, for, for what we do, I think they were the band. I... I was really lucky where um, King's X have, it's sort of like everyone who plays music in Perth for one reason or another seems to be aware of King's X or in the circles we travel in anyway. Um, and my, again, like I said, my dad, you know, there was a lot of music in the house. He, he played guitar. My uncle plays guitar and bass. And um, the, the, the way I got into King's X, apparently my uncle tells me this story is he lived in Tassie for a while and his housemate had been to the States and had either seen them or knew someone who was just like, man, this was like late. So this is 87, 88. Like you have to hear this band. They're going to be the next big thing. Um, and yeah. And anyway, so he went and bought all this stuff. And I remember getting into music and just devouring guitar based music and hearing them and really liking it. And it wasn't until I was, in a band until we were actually doing the ragdoll thing that um, the guy who produces us and records us, Troy got turned on to them. And he was like, man, have you ever heard of King's X? And I was like, yeah, I've heard of King's X. I like King's X. And we all just went through this King's X phase where that's all we listened to. Yeah. And um, I went through that. They were sort of the, yeah, they were the band that I heard where I was like, okay, here's the, here's the perfect template for what we can do. You know, I heard him, probably at the right time. And it was like, all right, this is rolling together. All my favorite influences. They've got a singing bass player. They've got the drop tune stuff, but they've got the classic rock thing and they've got the melodic thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, there's some songs on the, uh, that we're recording at the moment that sound a lot more like King's X than Rust. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, it's, I'm, I'm sure people will, will hear them and be able to pick, pick up that influence a little bit more but yeah they're they're probably like top five in terms of just bands i love i've been really lucky i um uh forget it was 2014 or 15 mm -hmm. um and we were we were in la on tour and you know i someone had put me in touch with doug 
and Shit. we got to hang out with him. We actually had dinner with him, and you know, he's Holy the mom. most the most level headed, no ego, humble, cool guy ever. Um, and we were we were just like ultimate fanboy, you know. And um, we he actually came down to our show the next night and hung out, and it was it was the most surreal for me. That was the most like how small is the world really yeah. uh, kind of moment. And, you know, it, it was, it was really interesting meeting someone like that because they obviously never had the mega mainstream success that I think a lot of people thought they deserved. Um, yeah. but his, his outlook on it was, he wasn't, he was he didn't, he wasn't embittered by it or anything. He was just like, you know, that's just the way it is. He's like, there's so many, so many great bands out there who people never get to hear. And his take on it was that, they had a really, really, the people who did like that band were incredibly loyal and always came to shows and always bought, you know, albums and merch. And his take on it was, he was just like, man, I'm just grateful that there's, there's enough people who like what I do that I can make a living from it. And, you know, so what, I never got to be a mega rock star. Well, I, I know plenty of people who did and they're not necessarily happy. So yeah. that was a pretty, you know, it was on one hand, it was a bit, uh, one of those things where you go like, Oh man, but no, you, you deserve all these things. You're such a great band. And on the other hand, it's like, well, sometimes that's how the cookie crumbles. And you know, that's, that's a really great philosophy to have to, you know, to, I guess, get through, get through the ups and downs. That's probably one of the best stories that I've heard in 450 interviews, man. I've got to hand it to you because Doug Pinnock's very important to me. King's X are very important to me. The whole band tie, Jerry Gaskill and drums there. I had a chat to George oh. Lynch the other day, mate, who's playing in K- KXM with Doug. Yeah, yeah, to, that's amazing. Yeah, but to actually have sat down with the great man and had dinner and broken bread and actually listened to the stories that he's prepared to share, man. Man, I, I know he's a very social guy because I follow him on Instagram and the like, but for an Aussie yeah. artist to be able to do it's a completely different thing. So what did you do? You were over in LA and you, you knew somebody who knew him who reached out to him and asked me if he wanted to hang out with you guys. Is that how it went down yeah well it, it it was funny because when the first kxm album come came out That's one of my album, friends man. run yeah and i had it and really really i was sort of like man this is i, I love this because i love ray luzier as well he's one of my favorite drummers yeah, epic yeah. So i was like oh this is this is a dream band um and my friend runs like a you know sort of a rock oriented uh web magazine i guess and he he just dropped me a line and said hey i've got doug pinnock lined up to do an interview rather than me do it i know he's one of your favorite favorite guys do you want to just do the call and you know just record it and then send it to me and i'll um i'll, I'll jot it down if you you know 10 15 questions kind of thing and uh so i did that and um him you know he's he's such a chatty social guy that was just kind of um you know he we got talking like this and he was just like, Oh, you play music. And I was like, well, yeah, actually, you know, I'm in a band and I love King's X and, um, you know, and he was like, well, what are you guys doing? It's like, well, funny you mentioned that because we're going to be in LA in, you know, six weeks or something, uh, doing some shows. And he was like, I'll come out. That sounds great. And I thought, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. You know what I mean? And I always remember, he was like, just dude, just send me an email. You know, you've got my email address now, just stay in touch. And, um, where we were, we were sitting in the pool at this hotel. And it's like, I said to the, one of the guys, I was like, Oh, should I, should I, should I message Pinnock? 
Um, and he goes, yeah, man, you got nothing to lose. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to bother him. You know, <laughs> he won't come anyway. And I get this email back immediately. Just like, where are you guys staying? I'll be there in an hour. Let's like, let's hang out and get something to eat. And, and I was Holy like, shit. okay, well we better be ready. And you know, he shows up in his truck and just kind of walks into the lobby and he's like, Hey man, what's up? It's great to meet you guys. I can't believe you're from Australia, you know? And he was saying how that was, they, there had been multiple times um, in the late eighties and early nineties that they had potential tours to go to Australia and that it had just never worked out. Hmm. Um, and it, had, it was somewhere he'd always wanted to go. And um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, uh, I think he was pretty used to other musicians who were huge fans wanting to, to you know, go out and yeah. get yeah. drinks with them and go to dinner. And yeah, he was just, he was so gracious and had a lot of time. And it, it was a really, we, we kept saying afterwards that it was interesting how he was so good at taking compliments. I'd never met him because we were just like, ah, you're the best. Oh my God, this album, what are you doing? You know, full yeah, once, w- once we realized, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and, um, it was, it was interesting because I think he realized that people really liked the music he made, but at the same time, he, he wasn't, he wasn't precious about it. It was like, oh yeah, you know, we did this. And, you know, at the time I was going through this and in, in my life and the other guys were doing this. So we wrote it about this and, you know, we, you know, yeah, it was it was really cool the way he was able to go. Ah, you you love it? Well, yeah, I I, I guess you do. It's it's great music, and um, I love it too. But you know, it's you know, it's not the most important thing in the world, I guess. And yeah, it was it, he, there was no kind of false modesty there, and at the time, at the same time, there was no overblown, you know, massive ego or anything. So, and uh, yeah, and you know, we've like I've been really lucky where we've kind of off and on stay in touch over the years, and uh, like I think. He's one of those guys that everybody's got a, everybody I know in the States has a, has a Doug Pinnock story. <laughs> wow. That's interesting because he would be, I've got to say, I reckon he'd be the only person at this point in time that I'd be nervous about interviewing only because his music, I remember listening to Dogman, I, I, if you could wear oh. a CD, I wore it out. You know, I mean, it was, I mean, just what he looked like, he, he looked, it's funny that, I think you mentioned in there that, uh, Oh, I can't remember what you said, but anyway, alluding to the fact that he's a rock star but not really doesn't plays it down or what have you. But he, to me, was the archetype of what a rock star should look like. You know, the dreadlocks yeah, and that he's. It's used so to have. effortless for him. You know, he just he still looks like that. He's in his mid sixties. I think he's in he's his mid seventies, isn't he? I think he's even older than that these days. I I, I think he's probably if it's not mid sixties, it's probably late sixties. Oh, then again, yeah. this was a few yeah. years ago. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe he's close to seventy, but he's just in amazing shape and mm. you know his all the clips i've seen his voice still sounds great and um he's he's just been he's just been at it for a long time you know and for him he was i remember him saying he's like you know um but for me growing up i he was saying that you know he was like i was an angry guy i'm still an angry guy but you know um i, I don't live this like angry life because i've got music in it and that's how i get it out and you know that's singing and, and playing and writing. And um, he was just saying that he, he felt really grateful to have found that uh, in his life to, you know, basically just keep doing it. He's like, that's why I'm always going to do it. It's not a, hmm. it's not just like a kind of hobby or something. It's something that's pretty integral to, to his being. So I think it's, you know, it's always nice, I think, because, you know, I could tell you a hundred stories about other people who 
I admired who were total jerks. But um, for me, it's like that kind of that experience um, hmm. was yeah. It was it was it was one of the. It, sometimes it's it's nice to have a really positive one. You maybe and you know maybe it's just you catch someone on a bad day. Otherwise, or you know, we caught him on a good day. But uh, yeah, it was. Oh look, we, I've got a. Yeah, I've got to tell you, the most difficult experiences that I've personally ever had are with local no-name musicians, to be honest, man. <laughs> look, to the point where I won't interview local metal bands anymore, except if they're right. on Firestarter. You know that? Um, there, there's a few exceptions, but, mate, it was, it's been punishing, to be honest with you, um, in, in terms of that I might even get sent a bio or some information, and that's all the information that I've really got to draw from because there's not a big internet presence. And I start asking questions courtesy of the yeah. bio, and they question me why I'm questioning them on this aspect of their career. I'm thinking, because isn't the fucking bio, <laughs> for God's sakes? What do you want me to do? So, mate, I, I just, I, I, I have never met somebody of, and I've, as I said, man, I've, and this is no brag, this is just sheer data. I've done well over 450 interviews at this point. Every single internationally renowned musician that I've met, I'd be pleased to call a friend. And given yeah, that my interviews awesome. run from the longest one's been four hours, the shortest ones are usually sort of 15 minutes. But I talk to them, man, and, and then I sometimes do catch up with them. And I've got plans to catch up with them when they come through town. And they're cool people, you know. But it's a bloody local musicians that seem to have these tags on themselves. And I never understood that because that's, a, that's not just – that's when I was at Telstra and I was talking to junior account executives there too. When I was an account executive there, I was a senior account executive there. It's right. not your fellow senior account executives. It's the bloody juniors that you cop the most stick from. And you think, why yep. is this? Why is this here? So you, that, that wonderful story there that you've, you've shared about Doug Pinnock, very jealous, I've got to tell you, mate. But I'm very happy for you at the same time because he's a hero of mine. He's one of the few people that I do say that about because his music, I don't know how many times, as I said earlier, I listened to Dogman on the train going home from uni back in the mid-90s when I was first at uni and feeling like shit about life and everything else. But his music just carried me, just the lyrics. And yeah. I often I often wondered, like, how does this African-American fella from the States, how is he able to speak directly to my soul? But I think he does that to a lot of people, meaning that he's over there. I think the thing there. is that it's got soul. You know, it's, it's heavy music, but it's got soul. And that's really, I think with a lot of heavy music, it's, it's almost like you can become too... Uh, almost like too self-aware or pretentious isn't the right word, but a lot of the time it's easy to play down that aspect of it. Um, but for a band like King's X or a band like, you know, uh, Deep Purple Mark III, there's that like, there's that link to uh, soul music and the blues and the, those like really universal primal emotions. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of times when we're, you know, writing or tracking a song or, we're at a gig where I'll hear Ryan singing and it just, it really, like it shivers in the same way. You know, he's got one of those voices, which um, it just kind of taps into, it taps into something. I don't know what it is um, where you just kind of hear it and it, 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 it almost spooks you. Um, and that, that for me is what I always look for in music. You know, you can have cool stuff and I'm, I'm very interested in the technical side of production and, hmm. you know, how to get certain sounds and, how to arrange certain things, but ultimately it comes down to um, it comes down to those sort of visceral, soulful elements. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, uh, that was the interesting thing. They um, they moved. This was the era of Rage Against the Machine and Nirvana and the like. When I got into them, mm -hmm. and I was getting into Living Color and Twenty Four Seven Spies and these so-called funk metal bands, and 
King's X just stood out for me big time, and I remember my mates listening to Pearl Jam to it. I didn't never really cared much for, to be honest with you. Respect them as musicians enormously, but I don't get into the music that much. Um, I've played enough of it because God knows I've played enough covers gigs myself. Yeah. God, half of the bloody rock songs you do are Pearl Jam or Nirvana songs, but it just doesn't move me in the same way as what King's X's stuff does. And in you might have unravelled the code there in so far as it's soul music, and that's why it affects affects yeah. musicians but, and you, you the funny thing is sorry i'll i'll, I'll let you finish oh it's just you, I was you gonna... made a really good point earlier about perth musicians i think it's globally king's x are the house band for serious musicians yes uh that put that on a t-shirt my god that's you've mm. actually summed it up better than i've ever heard it and it, it's a thing because if you see you know you see someone in a king's x t-shirt you immediately know you're going to be friends and um <laughs> i did a i did a vi- i did a video on my youtube channel a little while about him just like you know why i love king's x and that was kind of the point that it's like you meet another person who loves king's x and it's like you you're long lost soulmates or something you know you've got you've both had this moment and certainly uh, you know they're, they're in that kind of like cult band status where there's a bunch of there's a lot of other bands like that who um never had they 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 were like right on the cusp of being a game-changing band and for for whatever reason they never did it i remember doug saying they did a show in seattle in 87 or 88 Hmm. and he said man this is probably the best it was probably the best show we ever played in our lives and he said everyone who ever became anyone was there there was Chris Cornell, there was Jerry Cantrell, there was there was that whole hmm. Seattle scene came out to see King's X. Um, and he said, you know, that was right around the time we had all these songs in Drop D and we were, you know, we were kind of mucking around with these things. And he said, and, you know, obviously years later, I think it was Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam came That's out right. and said, yeah. yeah, King's X are the godfathers of grunge. That's they were right. the band that we all heard yeah. that changed the way we wrote music and... Um, yeah, there's, uh, it's it, that, that was kind of for me really interesting. It's like, oh well, that that would make sense in you know in uh, in the timeline of what was happening if you guys went and played there and you know lit a fire under everyone's ass. Yeah, mad respect to Jeff Ament for his comments around that. Um, I remember did that Pearl Jam also took Kings X out on tour as well, and I think there were comments right. like yeah. there were comments from the band like, man, they should be we should be opening up for them. You know, I mean they got yeah. it. <laughs> you know they got it, but you know, I mean it's. You got to. I've, I've had this conversation with um, with a number of people. I've got to tell you, um, with Vernon Reed from Living Color. I, it's, I don't want to draw too long a bow here, but mate, the media is so focused on image and the like that as soon as you've got a black guy up there playing rock music, they tend to ignore it. And I think the Living Color guys felt it. Twenty four seven guys definitely felt it. Oh, uh, definitely. And they're prepared to promote these five white guys in bloody Pearl Jam again. Nothing against the guys. They're lovely guys. I know they're they're decent human beings, but. Man, to me, they've got nowhere near as much talent as what King's X do. And and I and I couldn't help but feel like every... This is the 90s, right? Every second, actually, every magazine you open for about five years, music magazine, Rolling Stone or what have you, had it was either Nirvana, Soundgarden, or Pearl Jam. Um, yeah, and, and it was just and it was just like, oi, how much does being able to play guitar good suck, you know? Like, oh, yeah, it was, was a horrible I remember, era. I remember... Yeah, I think a lot of people look back on it, and it's, it's like any era, you cherry-pick... You know, obviously, the good bands from that era wrote stuff that's, you know, that perseveres. Everyone looks back and goes, oh, man, you know, how awesome. Like, look, you had Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and, Mm. you know, all this stuff. And there were a bazillion cookie-cutter bands like that 
you know, butchering that sound and oversaturating the market, just like, you know, with hair metal and just like with, you know, uh, <laughs> I always metal, make that yeah, comparison with, as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where people go, oh, you know, Era X had all the good music. It's like, yeah, but oh God, if you look at comment. the 70s, like how many teenage kids are getting pumped about listening to an old bread album? Like no one, <laughs> you know, um, they, they cherry pick the really great. Cause I remember being a teenager and like there was, you know, they had those like time, time life, you know, 30 CDs full of hits from the seventies yeah. featuring bread. And I just remember looking at all this stuff and just going, what? That was like the moment when I realized it's like, no, you always have stuff that's good and you always have stuff that kind of sucks. Yeah. And you forget, you know, time, suppresses the stuff that sucks but sometimes some really really good stuff gets lumped in with the stuff that actually sucked and uh, that's unfortunate yeah look that, yeah you've made a, a, some really good points through that and i'm i'm not nostalgic i've got to tell you i'm firmly rooted in the here and now it doesn't mean that i can't i mean one of my favorite guitarists is richie blackmore of course you know who's wouldn't be oh. if you understand music i mean to me he is he is the hard rock and heavy metal innovator he's the one that made the jump from Jimi Hendrix to Metallica, he's that glue. Yeah, you know what I mean. And yeah, well, I was I was listening to Gates of Babylon in the gym last night. I was mm. meant to be working out, and I ended up just like sitting on a bench for six and a half <laughs> minutes because it was yes. that his stuff is every time I revisit it, it's like I hear some nuance or I'm able to appreciate it in a in a slightly deeper way. And that I mean, particularly that and Rainbow Rising, that was an album that oh, I think God. when I was now fifteen I got yeah. And that was the album, that was a really, it was funny because I was, I was listening to it and I was going, man, this is the album that I trained my ear on because, you know, it used to just be, you want to learn a song, you know, you can go on the internet and get guitar tab now, how good is this? And none of those songs had been, you know, no one had figured them out. So it was like, oh, I really want to know how to play guitar to all of this album because I love all the songs. What am I going to do? Well, I better like figure it out and it was it was a long slow process and um that album kind of became part of my dna because i spent so much time trying to figure out what on earth was going on um mm. and i still listen to it and hear things that i didn't hear you know a decade and a half ago when i first heard it and uh yeah it's being able to sit back and appreciate and go ah oh, yeah when you hear when you hear him do this particular thing or you hear a Michael Schenker or you hear an Uli Roth, there's, you, we have the benefit of being able to go that record, you know, whatever it was, Richie was listening to Hungarian folk music and he was figuring out some exotic scales and he played them. And then 10 years later, you know, you've got, Marty Friedman might have heard that record and then he's gone, ah, oh, that's a cool idea. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up that ball and run with it. And then mm-hmm. another 10 years later, you have somebody else, uh, pick that up and do something interesting with it. And, um, yeah, that's the, it's, it's always nice for me. I love trying to find out, trying to trace music back to like the where's ground zero with a particular sound and, uh, with, with rock and metal. And for what we do, it's, um, I think Richie is, him and Tony Iommi are un- undisputably the two guys that kind of did all the hard work in laying the you know laying the foundation for that genre. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, I think with Sabbath though, and particularly Led Zeppelin, there's been in the internet era, there's been a reimagining of their relevance to a point though. So bear with me here whilst I make this point because that's a uh, 
that's a great way of saying it as well. Yeah, I mean, like a revi- like a revisionism. Yeah, it's a revisionism because to me, Sabbath only had three essential albums, and same with Zeppelin, by the way. And and whereas Rainbow, I think, had probably when you had when that band had Bob Daisley on bass, and you know the guy from Sydney who oh. wrote all of Ozzy Osbourne stuff. And, you know, oh yeah, exactly. God, let, let, let me go on for a couple of hours about that one, will you? But I won't. Um, you got Ronnie up front, of course, the great man himself. You got Richie, and then the master, the master blaster. All for me, and feel free to disagree with this point. Modern rock and heavy metal drumming. If it wasn't for Cozy Powell, it wouldn't sound the way it does. Now it might sound yep. like modern rock and heavy metal drumming, but it wouldn't sound the way it does right now. Now that band there, nowhere near enough relevance gets paid, or nowhere near enough attention gets paid to the importance of that lineup. I don't think. You yep. know, it was a lot of the Jimmy Bain. You know, Jimmy Bain, of course, is on. Um, Rising, great basses too. But Bob was the complete package because he could write, he could sing, he could play guitar. Yep. I think as well. And when I hear people go on about Sabbath and they talk about Never Say Die, it's a rubbish record to be honest with you. And I, I love Dio era Sabbath. I truly do. I actually much prefer Dio era Sabbath. I don't think that gets enough. But it's this constant, yep. you know, these center. You know, we, we look on the internet. We're not watching, looking at magazines, but we're looking on the internet these days at these classicrock.com and all these other sort of things. But again, every second or third article is about something to do with Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. I'm thinking, hang on a bloody minute. If it wasn't for Richie and Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix gets his due. There's no doubt about that. But if it wasn't for Richie and Bob and the great Cozy Powell, and I've spoken to um, Graham Bonnet about this, you know, who's of course was Yeah, in, yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I don't think music would sound the way it does right now. You know, and I've listened to a shitload of music. I'm trying to come from an informed perspective here. Um, but it's just, I, I wish people would sort of get over their fixation with the more obvious stuff and actually dive a little bit deeper is my point. Yeah, I think, I, as you said, I think it's, there's always this effort to, um, uh, whether it's with music or whether it's with history um, or, you know, it's, it's people are always looking for these really uh, simplistic narratives, you know, that, oh, yeah. um, and, and I mean, and you see the way that it plays it. I don't think it, the way it plays out in music is as, um, you know, as relevant to the outcomes you get in a society, but you see that with like historical narratives where it's like, you know, like really simplistic, like, Oh yeah, well, you know, uh, we're here cause we're the good guys and the good guys beat the bad guys. And the reason the bad guys were bad was because, uh, uh yeah, yeah, you get it. Um, and it's <laughs> a little true. bit, yeah. you, you see, the, you see those same uh, devices used in music where it's like, yeah, you know, and uh, Paul McCartney just woke up one day and he, he had this song in his head and he, he changed music or, you know, whoever smoked whatever. And then, you know, it's, it's like, well, these people didn't exist in a vacuum, you know, and if you, mm. again, if you look at what was happening uh, around them and that's, I mean, that's, it's funny because the internet lets you do that. Um, something I actually like about you know, streaming music is that um, a lot of those algorithms are tuned by what people listen to. So if you're somebody who listens to a lot of music, um, you know, then you're going to be feeding data into those algorithms. And if you like, you know, Black Sabbath, then you probably like Rainbow as well. And if that means that a 15-year-old kid who hears Crazy Train or who hears Paranoid is going to be sitting on Spotify going, what else sounds like this? And if there's right. a little icon which says rainbow or deep purple, then, you know, there's, there's no opportunity cost to just click on that 
and let it play and maybe hear some stuff that you love. And um, one of the things I've seen teaching guitar um, is it, you had these like definite moments where like when Guitar Hero was a thing, yep. that's when classic rock became okay again. Um, yeah. And you had, and then, and then now with Spotify and YouTube and things like that, it's, um, I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the teenage kids that I teach uh, who get into rock and metal um, are a lot more, um, they're like, they can, they can speak the language a little bit quicker, you know, and they, they're, they're almost immediately aware of a plethora of bands rather than just, oh yeah, I like Zeppelin and Sabbath. It's like, I have these kids who come and go, ah, oh, every week they're like, oh, hey, hey Leon, have you ever heard of, have you ever heard of Budgie? Have you ever heard of uh, <laughs> Rainbow? And it's like, yeah, let's, let's learn some of their spells. I've been, I've been waiting for this moment. So, um, so that's, one of the upsides I find with um, with something like that, but at the same time, for you know your average Joe, it is. I always remember what was the magazine in Australia, like Australian Guitar or something. Yeah, back in the nineties, um, the one that started back in the nineties, or uh, there was there, yeah. there was Australian Guitar magazine. I think that's what it was called. It might still be going actually. That's I think the I one. saw it in the airport. Yeah, recently. Yeah. Yeah, and I just I just had this joke with my friends where it's like, yeah, they only have you know, they, they must have a, like a, like a little, you know, spinning wheel with four options on it. And it's like each month, is it going to be Mossy, John Butler, Hendrix, or Chris Shaney on the cover? Cause they're the only people who were ever on the cover of Australian guitar magazine, you know, yeah. it was like every, every third, every third month they had like a Hendrix thing. And, um, then every, you know, obviously, you know, not to, not to belittle Chris Shaney or Mossy or anyone because they're great players, but it was like, really, again? Like, we're going to get another issue on these guys and a rig rundown, which has the same stuff, and, you oh, know, God, you're going to yeah. have have a 10-page article on, you know, Chisel, and it's like, this is all good stuff, but what about, what else is there? Surely these aren't the only bands uh, doing stuff at the time. And I, I always remember... Thing, but the cool thing about it was there were always little articles. I remember the butterfly effect got a write-up in one of them, and hmm. it was like, what? You know, this guy plays a Hughes and Kettner amp. Like, what on earth is that? And and then hearing them and just being like, whoa, I've never heard music like this in my life. Where would someone get the idea to do this? And then again, you know, it's like you read about those guys and they go, oh, we like Tool and we like Incubus, and like, oh, okay, I've never heard them on the radio here where do I, you know, so that was, that was part of the, part of the fun as well with those. Like if you could read, read between the lines, often you'd, you'd get some stuff, but at the same time, like you said, it's like, um, you know, and you still get them, like you get those polls, like who's the best Australian guitarist or like, you just know what the top 10 is going to be. Yeah. Um, but they got the know. poll and they've only got the, you can only pick from the selected guitarists that they've got there. You can't put your own in. You know, those polls where you've got yeah. to click on the icon? So they already know. They've already skewed it because there must be some sort of... I mean, they've got to be a bit more adventurous and, and have someone like yourself on the cover or, you know, on the inside th third page or something like that. Then those Nobody's denying the contribution to Australian music and guitar music in, in specifically the people that you mentioned have got. Although I, the John Butler thing I never quite got. That's my own opinion, of course, you know. But um, the... The thing is, is that particularly with hard rock and heavy metal, we've produced a lot of it and we continue to do so, yet our, our music media, our mainstream music media I'm talking about, and Triple J, as I mentioned at the beginning of our call, 
gloss over it. They don't pay any attention mm. to it. I don't get that because on any night of the week in most serious, except for Sydney, ironically, because of all the lockout laws and stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth. You're going to see a hard rock band on virtually any night of the week somewhere. Yep. There's going to be a venue somewhere playing hard rock or heavy metal. It just will be. That's certainly been my experience. Definitely in Melbourne, it's like that. Mondays and Tuesday nights, you can certainly find something somewhere or something approaching that, you know, but they just gloss over it. And so it's this, this fan-driven grassroots thing. And, of course, people like you and I, can't, I mean, this is why I don't subscribe to a lot of these. I stop subscribing to a lot of the magazines because yeah. I love Eddie Van Halen, right, but I don't need to read about his tone, of his so-called brown sound, whatever the hell that means, and the 5150, you know, the God knows how many reissues they're up to of that particular amp, the PV amp these days. I don't need to read about that shit. I want to hear new and emerging artists, which is why... I'm such a big supporter of a lot of emerging bands but from all over the world. That's what who I try to interview on the podcast series outside of the yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned Sydney uh, because I think probably my favourite Australian rock band at the moment are based in Sydney, and that's Bad Moon Born, and um, they have that audio slave rage against the machine kind of thing going on, but with you know great. We we played with them a few years ago, and it was one of those things where it was like you know, they, they played and we were just like, man, we love the way you guys sound. And then we played and they were saying it was very, very much like kindred spirits kind of thing. And, Mm. um, yeah. And, you know, they were kind of saying it's like, yeah, you know, because of all the, uh, lockout laws and stuff in Sydney, it's, it's not really worth their time to play out too much. Um, and where are, who's the other band? Uh, then they're more of a power metal band. I think they're based in New South Lord, Wales. Is Lord. Lord. Yeah, yeah, I spoke to Andy the yeah. other night. He's a, they're good blokes, actually, those guys. Yeah. And Andy, like Andy is to me, um, he's, he's like the Australian Doug Pinnock. He's the social butterfly <laughs> that everyone knows. And you just bring his name up and people go, yep, legend, you know? And yeah. I've, I've still never met him. And he had me on his podcast. And it was like talking to someone I've known for my entire life. You know, it was uh, it was such a such a great experience. Um, and yeah, you know, it's still like I said, still never met the guy in the flesh. But um, yeah, and uh, and you know, the stuff that they do as well is just like you know, from the perspective of they, I know they essentially built their own studio so they didn't have to pay for studio time, and they kind of just do it all themselves. And if you were a you know, if you were a 15 year old kid hearing them for the first time, you'd just go, well, this is, this is one of those like international world-class metal bands, not a bunch of guys from, you know, New South Wales, just doing it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Actually, it's, it's interesting because, um, we, we had a chat and I'll be appearing on his podcast episode sometime soon, maybe this week or next week. We're just sending through the photos and everything else to appear. So you're right. He, he does, um, he certainly, uh, puts himself at the center of everything and he's to be con- commended for that because mm. I think he's the only guy really doing it. And he's originally from up my yeah. way, actually. He moved down to Sydney about 15 or 16 oh, right. years ago. Yeah, he's from around okay. Redcliffe, yeah. Um, he moved down to Sydney uh, to, to be in Lord, I think, or Dungeon, I think they might have been called at the time. Either way, same band. We talked about that too. But yeah, he's doing a great job with both of his podcasts. And he's a bloke, to your point, it's very easy to talk to. And it's probably what I've noticed, and this is another point about God help me here for saying this, but I've never played in a heavy metal band. I've only played in, um, I interview heaps. I love heavy metal, by the way, as you can tell, but I've only played in Indian. I've played in a band called Velveteen that was based in Sydney. I was down in Sydney for that. 
But I I've just heard that band name before. Yeah, or we, is it just is, have I have I heard it, or is it one of those really familiar names? Like, is it just a good name, or oh, where would I know that a, from? Well, we we did have ironically radio play on Triple J. Um, okay, that well. And we did have uh, did do some shows with Thirsty Merc. So this is about 15, 16 years ago again, 17 years ago. Okay. See, this yeah. would have been when I was in high school. So that's like prime when your brain's like a sponge and you hear it, you know, maybe I heard it once on the radio, but I never forgot the name. Yeah, great band. Ben Russell's now over in uh, the UK. Uh, he's got a band called Ben Russell and the Charmers. He's just gone reggae and he's killing it over there. He's just a wonderful guy. Oh, wonderful wow. Musician. Yeah, yeah. Good bloke too, good friend. I haven't spoken to him in all that time, but I think if we ever caught up, mate, we'd probably get on the piss and have a great time of it like we used to. But, <laughs> but that was that was my one shot at it, actually, was with Velveteen, and I knew when that uh, sort of stopped because Ben went over to the UK. I, I didn't even sort of... I did. I was I, When I um, was in Brisbane, I was in uh, Cross Trigger, but we sort of didn't really do too much. We are just sort of like a local, local band, if you know what I'm saying, but I never... Yep. And um, I think I noticed you, you might know Dale, Dale Mackay. I noticed he was liked your individual page. I don't know whether you know him or not, but he's he's a bit of a guy around town in Brisbane, a lot of musicians know, and he was in Crosstring and he's a right. good mate of mine. Ah, right. I, I don't, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's, there are these inevitabilities with playing music in Australia that I found mm-hmm. that you inevitably, you know, if, if, it's like zero degrees of separation. Like you're probably just going to meet everybody. That's sort of my experience so far yeah um, and you'll all have it'll be like oh hey mate nice to meet you yeah yeah blah 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 uh, oh that's funny you mentioned so and so how do you know them oh i played in this band with them oh you know them do you know this person do i know this person you know and then it's and then you've you've you realize how much you have in common yeah actually the point i was going to make earlier was that andy's the first guy that i've there's probably been others but he's certainly the first guy that i'm aware of from within the heavy metal scene, along with Andrew Hogue, of course, you know, the guy in Melbourne, the Triple mm-hmm. J, three hours of power yep. guy, um, who's made a concerted effort to build a community within the heavy metal, to build a heavy metal community in Australia. And I really admire yep. that because I remember coming through and the metal guys at rehearsal were arrogant assholes a lot of the time, to be honest, man. And and I could I never understood it. I never, ever understood it. This music that I love so much seemed to, seemed to attract unsavory characters or people that just didn't seem to have manners and i never got all the all the all the stereotypes yeah it was true though it was it was honestly you go to some of these metal nights and people would just you know they push in front of you at the bar but man i'd go to even hip-hop nights and people wouldn't do that you know i'm only using that that genre as an example like it only seemed to be there and i'd go to the arena here in brisbane and there'd be you know just the like dear side glenn benton got spat on same thing with corpse grinder from cannibal corpse wow you know they got spat on men glenn had to remove songs from the set list mate because he got he was fed up with having shit thrown at him and being spat on and i thought i'm done man if this is the way people are going to carry yeah. on at these things and i love this music but i do not want to be around this shit you know i'm i respect the artist far too much to do that i can't understand why yeah. anybody would want to go to a show and spit on the bloody the artist i'd it's just so dumb, you know. And- I remember, I remember going to see Queensryche, and this to me summed up like Aussie audiences, um, the the unsavory. Well, maybe maybe not the unsavory part, but you know, there it was when Jeff Tate was still in the band, and I'd never mm. seen him before, and they they were about to do like a new song, and um, he he had this little you know monologue before the song where he was basically like, yeah, you know my my dad died recently and he was a Korean war veteran and he never spoke about like his, his point was, it's like, yeah, you know, right before 
my, my dad never spoke about his time in the military or in, you know, during the Korean war. And it was like this kind of shadow that always hung over the family. And, um, while he's, he's like, he, he, I forget the way he said it, but it was like, you know, it's one of those things that you don't talk about. And it was, you know, clearly this like emphatic point, you know, where he was going to continue the story. And some, you just hear some guy at the back go, we do mate. And yeah. I, I remember it was like the entire venue turned around and looked at this guy and just had this like, shut up. Just shut like, up, dude. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't meant to be your time to do something. And it's like, and I remember thinking as well, it's like, no, we don't like, this is exactly the same. Like there's exactly everybody I've ever met who has a parent who is in the military or something like that. It's never, like it's, it's still it's still like a taboo you know so i was there like oh well yeah this is very much my experience with with this like can't wait to hear this song and just having this like that uh which is yeah maybe it, i don't know it probably plays into that kind of tall poppy syndrome uh in yeah, a lot I of ways as well where it's like yeah I just, I just don't think it's necessary that's that's the point and it's i'm not being an old man about it because that dear side gig was 15 years ago or something you know and yeah I, yeah you know that's how i was in my 20s when i watched that so and um, yeah it just struck me and i thought and i think i had a few drunk because i used to go to gigs by myself because my wife likes beyonce and destiny's child and all that shit and there's no point bringing her to a death metal gig but i used to go by yeah, myself yeah. and i never used to drink and i wasn't a prude about it God, i used to go home and open up a beer but i used to drive so i never used to drink when i went to the gig yeah just take exactly. get my t-shirt take it all in and go home and have a beer when i got home look forward to that but and just you had people coming up to you and i i, I rarely go to gigs these days simply because life commitments just keep me from it um the last gig i went to was rings of satin and that was at the bright side here in the valley and that was really good actually that was quite the opposite wow yeah, yeah they're a great band yeah i spoke to lucas as well you know for the podcast series and uh yeah he yep. ended up reposting the pod the the podcast episode on his socials and i really appreciated that That's because awesome. well he opened up about his tr you, you probably know what's happened to him over the last two years or so but um you know he he's he talk about tall poppy syndrome holy shit didn't he cop it and uh yeah and I, feel, I really felt for him, and I genuinely felt for him. And I think he knew that I had sincere empathy for his plight because I think he's a tremendous guitarist. And you could even tell on stage he was a bit um, shy. You know, he was uh, sort of a bit introverted. And I just think, man, you're one of the greatest modern guitarists around and you're only 25 or something. <laughs> this is the time to enjoy it. And they were just so good. That whole band were just on yeah. point. Um and the, but the crowd, the point there is I ended up, did, I, I made an effort to speak to some of the people in the crowd because, again, I go by myself. And I saw a lot of people travelled for that gig, so I ended up travelling to a brother and sister pair from Bundy who might even listen to this uh, episode here. But there were, there were a few other people I just spoke to, all cool. So maybe we've turned a corner and just haven't been there for us to turn that corner. Or maybe I'm just getting older and the grey hairs in my beard sort of, um, you know, make me a bit more... Uh, approachable to some people when I talk to them. I don't know what it is, but yeah, yeah. I've definitely noticed I've always that. had I've always had a really positive experience when we've played with metal bands because we're not a metal band, but we're always in that, you know, this is like the running joke for us. It's like we're either the heaviest band on a bill by like a country mile where we're playing with other bands who, I don't know, sound like, they either sound like, a, you know, 70s Zeppelin or they sound like Guns N' Roses. And because we've got long hair and guitars, we get slapped on the same bill <laughs> or where yeah. the opposite where like the most melodic uh not heavy band by a country mile and there's a bunch of really intense like technical 
metal bands or power metal bands and stuff like that. So, um, and it's, it's never, it's never balanced. There's never a bunch of bands which sound like us. And starting out, that was, that was kind of like, oh, well, you know, this sucks, but you know, we pretty quickly realized it's like, no, that's your, if that's, if that's a thing, then you're always that point of difference. And, you know, playing to a room full of like people who want to hear intense death metal and playing what we play, you, you, you kind of get a pretty muted reception, but the great thing we found with those kind of crowds is maybe 10% of the people there will really, really like it and they'll appreciate the musicianship and they'll, you know, buy everything. Um, and we often have great nights in that respect or where like, again, we're like just way over the top of people's heads and, uh, maybe, maybe a bit much from what they would be expecting, but you get that 10% of the audience that are just like, Oh wow, this was, I'm so glad I got to hear you guys. So, um, but yeah, those, those metal shows, you know, even if people don't like it, they'll tell you they don't like it, but it's always pretty respectful. Like, you know, not my cup of tea, but you know, I can see you guys are really enjoy what you like doing. And so it's, um, it, that's, that's been a nice aspect of it. Uh, I think in, especially in Australia, in the States and in Europe where we've played, there's a lot more of a, we kind of, you know, we fit in a little bit more, I think But in Australia, it's either like, you know, you're either like hard, like super, super intense or super laid back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I, I agree with you, man. I always thought you guys would go down really well on any metal bill. I mean, you, you're universal. You, 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 you straddle that divide. There's, that's certainly what I hear. You've got the intensity of a metal band, but you're, you've got the, the melody of a really great kick-ass rock band, and you guys can certainly play. A lot of intensity there from some of the videos that I've seen as well. So, yeah, man, it's, it, you, you could almost, to your to that point, you could almost play in any bill anywhere, man. You could even play on Coachella. You know, you could even be the the rock band for Coachella. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, oh, that I'd I'd do that gig. That'd be a, that'd be an absolute hoot. Um, and yeah, it, it you know it's, it's funny. Like we've, we've, I think what happened was for us. You know, I was uh, twenty three the first year we went on tour in the states, and um, the the first couple of times on tour for us was such a it was such an intense learning experience because doing local gigs and we we do a lot of regional stuff here in WA because um, good on you. yeah it, good stuff it's it's i mean it's a their gigs and b people are always have to come out and see there's always um decent money involved so for us we kind of found out it's like well we can go and do these regional shows and we can put all the money aside and then we can use that to play interstate and play overseas. And that's, um, that's been the model that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the only thing we've tried basically. And we've been really lucky that it's worked. And, um, there's, especially going to America the first time, there was just this level of buy-in from the audience and from the people performing where it was sort of like, maybe, maybe it's like a, self-conscious thing here in Australia, but it's like, you know, you go into your band, often they just get up and we're, you know, very guilty of this where we just kind of get up and there's no big show. It's just like, how you going? Here's the first song. Yep. And um, over there, I always remember the, the first show we did was this, we were playing a small side stage of the festival and we, we went and checked out some of the bigger stages and, you know, you've got these internationally renowned bands with production and these amazing shows, but then the no-name bands who 
we'd never heard of who were like, you know, some local band from a small town in Alabama who had traveled a couple of states to come and play, had these incredible stage shows. And, you know, they had, they had confetti cannons and they had stage clothes and outfits and yeah, everything on stage was, was scripted. And it was just kind of like, oh, you can get you, like, you can do this. And people, the audience ate it up, you know? So that, um, that really helped us. It p- pushed us completely out of our comfort zone, but it pushed us into a new comfort zone, you know, where I think it, you just, you learn to back yourself, I think, where it's like, all right, well, you know, these are, we're going to play the most exciting songs from our back catalog anyway. So we may as well get excited about it. And, um, that's, uh, that was, yeah, that was really important for us. And, you know, a, a lot of bands never get that opportunity. So, um, we're very, very fortunate in that respect. So with, with all the touring that you've done traveling, especially in the States, cause I, I yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the States cause I think there's a lot of bands tend to overlook it and focus on Europe, but I think you guys are tailor made for that place, but there's a festival recently called Psycho Las Vegas. You might've heard of it. But yep. you guys would have gone down a treat on that particular bill there. It's exactly, you know, Misfits, I think, were headlining it. It's exactly your sweet spot. You know, there are a good blend of punk, straight-up rock and metal bl- metal bands on it. I'll get it out. But it, have you guys got an agent over there or someone who can do things for you? Uh, we Pretty much everything we do, we, we book ourselves. And we've got enough of a network over there now. Um, and the way a lot of those gigs work as well are... You know, it's a, it's the ultimate cliche. It's not it's not what you know. It's who you know. And yeah. often it's just a case of, um, you know, who, you know, who do we know who has either been to that festival? And I know um, there's a my my wife is actually from Dallas, and the um, I met her over there. I think the second time we went over, and um, one of her really good friends from uh, college is in a band called Mothership from Dallas, who are a great, if you like Earthless and Fu Manchu and that kind of thing, they've got that. They're like, they're like Hendrix Sabbath. You oh, know, nice. like, yeah. um, I like that. Yeah. Just, yeah, really, really groovy. Um, and there's a, there's a whole, that aesthetic there, that kind of, it's, it's not like, you know, we got Jet and Wolf Mother here, which was a very like contrived. It was like a, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was, it was, it was JJ's retro, you know, rather than going to a vintage shop and looking for stuff and yep. that kind of that kind of thing, you know, buying and collecting vinyl and vintage shops and it's it's just it's very much it's very much a lifestyle for a lot of people there and there's a big tight community around it and uh, anyway, I know I know Mothership have done Psycho Las Vegas before and um, gone they just you know it's been great to see that band everything they do they seem to just go from strength to strength, whether it's, you know, and they, you know, they play with a lot of international bands and they, they, they tour so hard. Um, and everything they come out with, it's like, Oh wow, I really, this is, this sounds even better. And I like the songs more. And it's, they put out material fairly regularly. It's almost like they are a band from the seventies. It's just been chucked in a time machine. And, um, you know, it's the same. I think the thing, I think the thing that's missing with a lot of retro stuff is it's an image and it's not an epic. Um, and when you can get that, yeah, I think good point. like a lot of music from a lot of that music that people, you know, we we're talking about rainbow and Sabbath and there was that kind of epic there of, you know, you just keep, 
you just keep pumping stuff out and you just keep writing and you keep touring and you keep, you keep your nose to the grindstone. And, um, that's the thing for me that, you know, as much as the music I really like from that era, that ethic of like, okay, we, 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 it's guitar music, but you know, Richie Blackmore, it's like, what other influences can I incorporate into this? Um, that's not just the blues. We'll use the blues as a base, but we'll bring in, you know, we'll bring in all these other influences and every, you know, it's almost like song to song, the production sounded different or there was some cool thing they were trying. And um, that to me is a thing that I really aim for when we make music. It's, it's as much about that kind of ethic as it is about the actual music. And you can hear that, you know, that as a dyed in the wall music fan, I can I understand exactly what you're saying uh, about that ethic there. Yeah, it's about capturing a spirit, isn't it? It's not, yeah. an, it's not yep. an aesthetic. It's it's capturing the spirit of this original of the of the Godfathers, if you like, and updating it for now, if you like, and adding your own twist on it. And I think you guys do that really well, you know that. And uh, it's just you know I've asked this question a lot, man, so I'll ask it for you. But uh, I think what you do is 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 excellent. It's extraordinary, mate. But how do more ears get to listen to you? And I'm a social media major here at uni, and I can tell you, mate, you, you, the algorithm changes. Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram al- algorithm changes so often. They are the most powerful people in the world. You know that these days, the people who look after the algorithm and change the algorithm at um, these social media companies. Because I know your organic reach these days. If I do a post on my Scars and Guitars Facebook page, I've got about four hundred and fifty odd people that like the page. You know, that's all organic. That's none of that's bought or what have you. I have done bugger all advertising as well. But only six percent of the people that are like my page are going to see that. You know, that, that's because of the algorithm. That's because of the way that it's yeah, set exactly. up. Yeah, exactly. And I, look, exactly because they're they're advertising companies. Um, that's what they are. They're data and, mining companies yeah. who are looking for product. Yep. They're looking for your information, and they're advertising. That's all they do. They don't give a shit about the product that we're trying to sell or what we're trying to achieve with our lives. They don't care about that. We that much was clear when the Cambridge Analytica data scandal. I mean, God, as if it needed to oh, be yeah. up until that point. But that really nailed the home, home, didn't it? But it's. It's just so hard for you're not a new or emerging band, but you know what I'm saying. You're an established band, but even for you guys, it's difficult to really cut through the mess and the noise and say, "Hey guys, we've got this great single out. It's called Rust. Check it out." Yeah. So, so if you got some ideas about how you can uh, further promote the band to reach an audience that I feel you deserve, the thing that over the last uh, probably two years now that has um that has changed that. I mean, for us, it was always just, you know, getting on the road and touring and, you know, getting in front of people and building, building audience that way. And, um, that, you know, you, as our personal lives have changed and developed and, um, uh, you know, our singer Ryan has four kids now and, um, uh, you know, one of them was, I got really, really sick um, at the end of 2017 and 2018. And Mm. that just absolutely makes you realize really in the big scope of things, uh, how unimportant so much of the the stuff you thought was important is, you know, it's like, so for, for me, it was sort of like, okay, cool. Well, you've invested so much in, you know, like actually just getting out and playing for people, but, how are people actually, how are people consuming music now? And what other, as you said, what other way can you drive people to it? And 
um, as a pretty much an organic thing for me. Um, I got into doing guitar stuff on YouTube and um, oh, yeah. because, because I'm an insane gear nerd, um, it became, uh, I, I noticed that certain videos that I would do for fun um, would, would get a certain number of hits and um, it, it was essentially, you know, when you're making music, there's realistically, you can only put out an album, you know, if you're, if you're really prolific, if you're King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard every six months, but, <laughs> but for the rest of us, uh, you know, every two to three years, um, and if you think about that, that's, that's maybe 10, 12 songs um, and a couple of videos and a couple of singles and things like that. And when I realized or when I kind of had that realization that it's like your nowadays bands, uh, you're competing with people who are creating content, whether it's, you know, whether it's Netflix who have, you know, a bazillion dollars behind them to make superhero shows or whether it's, people uploading videos of their cats every day doing funny things. Um, ultimately you're, you're competing for that same space, um, and for people's attention. And, you know, 50 years ago, a three minute pop song was, that was such a niche thing. That was such a niche piece of content, um, to be able to produce. And if you could do that, um, then the radio would play it and it only takes up a small percentage of the airtime. But then if people want to hear it again, they can go and buy the seven inch or whatever. And then that evolved into the music video. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess then that evolved into this. Then you had downloading in the internet and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's almost, uh, almost, you can almost look at the history of, like when we look at recorded music and the CD or vinyls and things like that, you can almost look at it as an aberration in history where it was like, you know, you had, if you wanted to make music, if you wanted to make money making music a hundred years ago, you had to publish music. Um, and those revenue streams are still semi intact. And if you're writing music for film or you're writing music for placement and things like that, but, it's almost like the pop song is this really strange aberration where there, we've lived through this era where you could put it on a really exclusive medium hmm. and sell it in vast quantities. And I mean, you were never able to do that before. If songs were popular, people would sing them and, you know, pass them on. And then now they're, you just stream them and download them and hit the next thing and they, they don't generate any revenue. Mm -hmm. um, really as a piece of content, whereas I can sit in my home studio um, and plug my guitar in and, you know, in the morning have a cup of coffee and go, all right, well, what am I going to make a 10-minute video about today? Yeah, cool. I'm really interested. I listened to Gates of Babylon last night, so I'm going to talk about the Hungarian minor scale today in my video, and people tune in, yeah. and I'm able to then, you know, I've got a pretty substantial subscriber base now who are obviously really aware of Ragdoll because I'm always, you know, always shilling it. And um, then I, you get this like trickle in effect of because your videos are, you know, for me, I found that doing, I pretty much do a video every single day, whether it's, um, and I, it's taken me a long time to figure out, you know, I have shorter videos, I have longer videos, I have videos that are geared towards guitar playing, towards guitar gear. I do you know, like tour vlogs and kind of 
pieces of content like that. And um, once I once I got over that, you know, self uh, uh, that thing where it's like, oh yeah, you know, creating content that's just sort of a buzzword. Um, uh, once I got into that, and once I realized that YouTube was a good medium, um, and it may not stay the big medium, um, but uh, you know, there's other you know, other, I guess, things which will come along, which will blindside us inevitably with tech. Um, once I sort of realized that, then it's like, okay, cool. This is something that's actually, for me, my workflow is really straightforward um, mm. for making that stuff. And it doesn't really take me a lot of time. Um, you know, if it takes me 45 minutes to produce a five-minute video where I'm dialing in a sound on a piece of gear and it's like, all right, you do this, this, and this, and this is the kind of sound you might then want to play this particular song or this particular song. And, you know, it's influenced by X, Y, and Z. Um, and then take it off my camera and chuck it into final cut and edit it and upload it. Um, then that is nothing compared to recording a song like rust, which was, you know, however many hours of, it took to record the initial demo and then however many rehearsals we had to flesh out the arrangement. And then, you know, the, the time it took to do the session and record all the instruments. And, you know, we, we tracked vocals for that one. And then we listened to the song for about a month and then went, you know what, we should retract vocals for it. So we did. And, um, you you, you start, it's just a much longer scale for that kind of thing. So, the thing I think nowadays is I, I see, for me, I see music as it's, it's always been something I've been really passionate about, but Ragdoll is for all of us. It's, uh, it's, it's, it really is a passion project. You know, it's, it's not something that, um, this, the music we record is not our, ever going to be our primary revenue stream. It's going to be, it's essentially going to be driving people to buy t-shirts and, it's branding and it's yep. playing shows and, um, and it's all these other things. And it's kind of about diversifying now um, where you make, you know, uh, a lot, you know, you make a little bit from a lot of sources rather than, I mean, it would have been incredible to be signed to a, to a massive deal. And, you know, you could spend a million dollars on an album because it would make $10 million. And, yeah, yeah. and now, you know, it's like, well, all right, if we want to spend 10 grand on an album, we're never going to see that money again, but you know what? Like I reckon that cost is worth it because we're going to get something that we're so happy with at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, man. A lot of points in there. And I think content creation via video, mate, you've nailed it because that is the uh, most accelerated form of media that consumers are getting into in 2019 and beyond. It's, it's literally yes. eight times. That's the data. I can tell you that for a fact. It's eight times. So that's up to date, August 2019. Uh, that is the growth of it. Eight times everything else, mate. So if you're doing videos and wow. it's stuff that you, you're able to drive back to, you know, it's got a point and, and it's it's no longer enough for bands to just have uh, the, the music, so the product, and then play shows. You've actually got to have a lot more than that. And if you not don't have an engaging social media presence, you won't get anywhere. In 2019, yeah. it's literally just the case. Yeah. And people fight it. Hey, guess what? Nobody likes Facebook, but we actually have to be on it if we're in, in doing what we're doing. Me as a podcaster and you as a musician. If we're not on it, I don't have an audience. It's that simple. Uh, or there's no way for yeah, them to contact me. I, re I, I forget who 
when I saw it, it might've been Andy who we were talking about earlier. It's like, you know, um, think about, if you think about the cost of taking out an advertisement for your local gig for four weeks in your, all your local papers, as well as your, you know, state or city based paper. And you compare that to the cost of running an ad, a targeted ad on Facebook. Um, it's actually a pretty good deal to spend, you know, if you were, if it was an album launch, drop a few hundred bucks on targeted advertising on Facebook um, to drag people and, you know, have a, have a slick looking promo video for it and make sure that everybody possible who might want to come to the show is at least aware of it. Um, you know, it's ticking away in the background because they're all sitting on Facebook scrolling through. They're all sitting on Instagram, looking at photos of cats and girls' butts and, you know, <laughs> Kardashians. Pretty looking guitars. So if it, if it if it pops up, oh, Ragdoll have a show. Yeah, okay, whatever. Then two days later, oh, Ragdoll have a show. It's it's that sort of you know uh, the way. I'm sure a way. Part of the way a lot of these, as we said, they're media companies. The, their algorithms are you know they're des- they're designed to uh, harness those quirks in human psychology and really really drive um you kind of drive something into you almost like your subconscious where it's there's so many things where it's like i i won't be aware of something happening until somebody else might mention it and it's like oh yeah of course they have that show coming up i've heard all about it and then i might think well no i've probably just seen the ad on you know the various social platforms i use so um if they don't owe you anything you know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't owe you or me anything. Um, it's if you look at it solely as it's like, okay, this is a thing I can use to drive people to my content, then then it drives you less insane, <laughs> I find. And yes. I really make a concerted effort nowadays to spend as little time on those platforms as possible um, because the the creative energy that I have that I, I like to come out in melodies and riffs really gets dissipated when, you know, I start, you know, reading people's statuses and getting involved yeah. in political discussions online. It's sort of like, okay, these, I'm actually just being manipulated by these finely tuned algorithms to, to do this. Um, so I can turn it off and I can play my guitar and I can make a YouTube video and I can upload it and then I can forget about it until tomorrow and then I might read some of the comments and there might be some really good feedback in there or some suggestions and then I can go away and make some more content and you know I can I can work on songs and arrangements in between that as well so it's a um if you you know it's like anything no I'm sure people in the 70s were complaining that you know vinyl that albums people buying LP albums was bad because no one was going out and buying the singles anymore. So yeah, you couldn't put out a single every month. You had to put out an album every year and that mess with their cash flow or something. So hmm. uh, tech, like tech is really, you know, disruptive, but, but I'm sure there was, it's just distracting us oh, from it's some just, other problem. Yeah, exactly. We could have had. It's just the new distraction. I think people, I mean, I grew up in an era uh, where we didn't have iPhones and computers and basically computers. I've seen them come into the household Growing up in the yeah. kid in the eighties, and then as a teenager in the nineties, you know, we didn't have a computer up until about nineteen eighty eight or so. 
I don't even think we got a video until about 1986 or something like that, you know. And wow, and there we there weren't ludites, but my parents were. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of money, so I mean, you know, what are you going to do, you know? So it was it was more that there there were heaps of things to distract you. I can't even remember what a lot of them were now, but there was always excuses for not doing things. But social media and screwing around on it is a great excuse, isn't it? Because it's it works in the same synapses as I understand that heroin does. Um, yeah, very addictive. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, apparently it does. Apparently, there's a lot of academic research out there about it. And uh, what were they? Um, oh, I'm going to lose the point entirely now. It was a really important point too, because it was as a result of these inquiry inquiries into Cambridge Analytica, Facebook. There were some recommendations that they're effectively acting as a cartel, Facebook. So they've got to be broken apart, but. The way to do it is the to antitrust. Not... Yeah, I'm aware of the antitrust stuff in the yeah. papers. There you go. It's pretty interesting. Interesting arguments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I think people, you know, I think society. Uh, I, I think overall, the biggest issue we have in society is the speed of society. The fact that things mm. are going so quickly, and there are constant deadlines, and there's constant bullshit goal setting, and it's a very American thing to do to have goals and all this sort of stuff. I think, and I notice a lot of it's creeping into our psyche here in Australia, and. To be honest, mate, I disagree with it because we're not we're not listening to music properly. You know what I'm saying? We're not listening yeah. to albums, and I don't blame people for this. But I grew up in an era where we did listen to albums, and I could sing every word of Faith No More's Angel Dust and Weezer's Pinkerton. You know, and these were really important albums. Oh, yeah. And, and Dogman, I mean, I could pretty much sing that one backwards. You know, and and I could um, every time I put on the track Cigarettes, I'd stop what I was doing and just listen to it. Because it had an effect on me, you know, and and I just wonder if people are going through the same things these days. Or you made some really good points earlier, a really good point earlier that you are you're competing with not just music as an artist. You're competing with content. It's just content. And a rugby player over here made made a point that he Tim Horan, you know, is a World Cup winning Wallaby. Yep. He uh, made the point. I think it was him. Anyway, I'll use him anyway because I'm pretty sure it was him that said it. But he made the point that the Reds, our, our uh, super rugby side here, they don't just compete. They're not competing with league anymore and AFL. You're competing with mm-hmm. Coldplay when they come into town because a family is going to make a decision about whether or not they go to a couple of Reds games or whether or not they go to a Coldplay or a Taylor Swift concert. Yeah, and, and yeah I that's very true. Yeah, and I think that's – I don't know – how different that was to when I was growing up. I'm sure we had similar pressures, but my God, there are far more entertainment options now when I was growing up. Way more ways to waste and I mean, time. I mean, the thing is, it's like, really, would you rather go to a gig where you might have to drive? You know, you've got to drive yourself out there. You've got to pay 12 bucks for a drink. Um, it's going to be loud. The sound is, you know, if it's a local gig, is going to be average at best. Um, you know, there's... You're going to have people shouting in your ear all night because the music's going to be too loud. Yeah. You're going to wake up feeling like garbage or you've got like any movie you ever want to watch on Netflix or you've got, um, you know, you've got YouTube where you can watch weird bootlegs of all your favorite bands or um, <laughs> you've got internet pornography where you can see anything you ever dreamt of seeing um, and you compare that to like, going out to a gig, you can see why a lot of people go, ah, too hard, um, where it's it's very much, uh, I always like that, you know, with the last album we did, Back to Zero, It's I really, really like, um, uh, I'm a big fan of the whole, you know, 
dystopian future genre of literature, whether it's, you know, whether it's sci-fi or whether it's political writing or whether it's history even. And um, a lot of, we, we had the joke on the last album that every, every song was just complaining about a different social network um, where we had, uh, you know, we had rewind your mind, which is essentially about, Facebook and we had another song where we were like, yeah, Hey, that's the Instagram song. And this one is, you know, that's the, this social platform and that's this one. And hmm. uh, they weren't explicitly about those things, but that was just kind of the running joke. It's like, Oh, this is this type of, you know, this type of character. And, um, uh, the, you know, everybody loves rolling, you know, anytime you see something on the news about the government enact some law, you know, everybody goes, Oh, 1984, it's coming, and <laughs> oh, that um, old chestnut, yeah, like it's not already yeah, here. It's like, you want to argue the point? It's, it's already like, here, but yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It's it's so much worse than anyone ever imagined. But I was I was like the counter argument of um, you know Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Just hmm. we're just going to amuse ourselves to death, um, uh, which is which is very much you know what what do you where do you stop once you get on this like. Uh, hedonistic spiral where it's like, okay, you can, you can get an idea of how these algorithms on Facebook work to get a lot of likes on your post, and you can get prestige from that. You know, if you're a 14 or a 15 year old, you know, and you figure out that posting funny memes is going to make people pay a lot of attention to you. Psychologically, we're geared to really lean into that that type of behavior. So, w- what's going to what's going to stop people um when you've just got this proliferation of like stuff that is designed to engage people and um you know musicians um most of the musicians i know are in many ways trying to seek out the most authentic way of being and they're trying to reflect that in their music so they don't think about these things um and to think about them is kind of anathema. I don't really want to think about them when I write a rock song. I don't want to think about who, what my audience is, or I just want to write a song. And that's the, that's the space it fills in my life. So I think when I realized that, then I stopped feeling embittered that I wasn't living in a billion dollar mansion and that I wasn't selling 10 million records like the Scorpions or Led Zeppelin did. And it's like, well, that's, that outcome is in no way related to the, you know, to the inputs that I'm putting in there. As long as the inputs that I'm putting in uh, are good inputs and I'm coming at it from the right place, that's why I play music. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hearing you. You play music because it's in you, don't you? You play music because even given other options, you'd still play music. Um, exactly. Know, exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's how it is for me anyway. You know, it's, um, well, you, you get a bit burnt out at times, I think it's fair to say. You know, you get over the rehearsal and doing the gigs and lugging things from gig to gig and then getting home at 4 a.m. And cause I play covers, you see. Um, but you always. Oh, yeah. I also yeah. do a lot of that. So I feel you're right there, man. Oh, if you're doing that, man, then you know it's a being on the treadmill. You know, I've, I've had to stop it, to be honest, man. It just. At my age, with my commitments, man, it just got to the point where I just I was literally falling asleep all all Sunday, and the wife is, "What are you doing? Yep. You know, you can't do this anymore." And I was working a lot at Telstra and doing that, and man, it was way too much. I got to tell you, it was way too much. I, I said this to Andy when I, I was I appeared on his podcast, and what did I? I, I used to 
work up in Cairns, so I used to pack my gear into the back of my Jeep on Sunday nights. I used to drive to Brisbane Airport. This is when the wife couldn't drop me off because we've got two young ones. I used yeah, to right. get in, travel, obviously, up to Cairns, do what I was doing up there, fly back <coughs> on Friday, go to the gig, so wherever that might have been, wow. with the gear that had been the whole week it had been in Brisbane Airport. Thank God nothing had ever been broken into or nothing had ever happened to everything, but, man, I did that a lot. And, and I thought, and then I'd do Friday and Saturday night and then rinse and repeat, do it again. And... Um, it was too much, man, way too much. And I love playing, but by the literally by the third set, if someone had said, you can go home now, pay me a hundred bucks, I would have done it. I was just so tired and I love playing music, but I never, ever want it to feel like a chore. You know? The, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's such a, you know, you talk about, you were saying goals before, and I think it's really easy to look at, to look at goals in this really one dimensional way of just like, they're just purely, they're just purely the outputs, you know, that you get. Yeah. Like I want, I want to achieve people look at it and just look at the output and go like, that's the output I want. But sometimes you really have to actually look the, I mean, the thing that you're going to live through isn't the output. It's the input and it's the process. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. Know? Yeah. This goal that, setting that, thing is, is really pissed me off to be honest with you, because I hear a lot of people talk about it, but you have big goals. Like one of my big goals now, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned a few times, I'm at uni studying to be a journalist. That's a goal, but it's not a micro goal. I'm not micromanaging it. You know, I'll take this over yeah, two yeah. years and there'll be plenty of other opportunities to do things that will come up in between now and then. But this whole goal setting thing, I, I do subscribe to Success Magazine and I read that, but they're big about goal setting, you know, the, the Jim Rohn and Darren Hardy thing. It's the one big thing that I disagree with all that stuff because if you're so intently focused on setting goals every week, like everybody writes down lists, you know, you've got to do that stuff. You know, you've got to remind yourself to do the washing and do the ironing and all that bullshit, but that's not goals. You know, you know, but there's this constant. That's just, it's, as you said, it's just, it just has to be done. Yeah. Yeah. It's just got to be should done. Be, yeah. You should be doing that. You know, it's like, um, uh, I always remember somebody, I, I, I don't have kids. I have no plans at the moment to have kids, but, um, I knew people at school who were 14 or 15 who knew that was the number one thing they wanted to do. It's like, God, if yeah. I have kids. I, I will feel good. And then a lot of people who, you know, who often I, I, I see it, who really do want to do that and start a family and go, Oh, but you know, I'm not in the right place. And it's, it seems to be that if you're going to be successful, that's something that you're going to do no matter what, you know, like mm. if there's people, I, there's a guy, I forget his name. He's a, I remember seeing him uh, in a guitar magazine about 10 years ago. And he was born without a forearm on his right arm. It was some uh, genetic um, abnormality mm -hmm. and loved, loved the guitar. And just his essentially for the first 25 or 30 years of his life was always told, well, you, you know, oh, it's a shame, mate, you'll never be able to do it. And if you can imagine having like a suction cap on your elbow, mm -hmm. this guy had basically had this little contraption or it was like a suction cap or it was gaffer tape. And he had like a little thing holding a pick and he had taught himself to pick with his upper arm. Cause that's all there was. And he was playing eruption and it was one of the best versions of eruption oh, I ever heard. Oh, and it wasn't until halfway through 
I noticed this guy didn't have half an arm and I was just kind of like, there you go. You know, mm. it's like literally you, you, you actually, anyone would look at you and go, well, you can't do these things. And it's like, well, no, actually I'm just going to, I'm going to optimize what I've got to these particular things. And yeah, he was saying, it's like, yeah, my, my, <laughs> I, I just wanted to learn how to play eruption. That was like the one thing I ever wanted to do on guitar. And in this whole process, I've learned so many great things. I love the guitar so much, but this is the, this was the thing that got me rolling with it. So yeah, I think it's uh, in- inevitably. Um, I remember another thing I remember reading when I was quite young was um, Robert Fripp talking about, um, he was talking about some kind of guitar you know, class or course he was putting together. And um, he said a lot of people get really frustrated with the course because we spend so much time on like minutia, like how you hold a pick or. Oh yeah. But that's all important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, his, his point was, if you think about it, that's a really small, seemingly unimportant thing, but the majority of your life is actually made up of small, unimportant motions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I think he was referencing, um, uh, and a, a friend of mine who's a, an incredible classical double bassist um, injured his shoulder and he, he ended up having a bunch of Alexander technique stuff that he got into. Yep. Um, and, he, you know, essentially it was like, yeah, you correct your posture and you try all the little things you do, like, you know, you drop a $2 coin, so you reach up to pick it up. It's like try to do those with, like, the optimal motion and then you won't have this, like, agglomeration of injuries and, I, I don't know how true any of that stuff is, but as a guiding philosophy, it's almost like how yeah. can you how can you how can you look at the big picture? You know, sometimes looking at the big picture is totally overwhelming, but then sometimes zooming in and looking at the little picture is like micromanaging, as you said. These like you know, lots of short term goals. It's like well, goals I should say. It's like well, maybe maybe it's maybe there's a scaling up process where it's like if you're able to focus on something, then that process will actually scale up to, to, you know, to be a big term thing. Cause humans really, we're not that good about looking too far into the future um, where these like small, small scale creatures. And, you know, maybe as you said, it's, you have the, they have the big goals, but the way you get there is not by a bunch of these tiny little outcome, outcome, outcome. It's really, it's, it's the process, like, you know. Yeah, the process you're not is really important. Yeah, that was my point. Like, it's most of your life is actually just the process. That's what you actually have to live. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> try to try to optimize that. I actually, mate, I've got to tell you, I don't even set goals these days. I mean, the, the, the nearest thing that I've got to a goal is to ensure that my, my children, my two daughters, have a life experience as their mentor, as their father, and, of course, my wife as their mother. We just you know, it's going to be difficult because life is difficult and it's also pretty cool too. But just to make sure that the boundaries are well contained, that's about it, you know, and, and I want to yeah. get through this degree Yeah, it's a great well. way to look at it. Yeah, I, I don't want any more than that, mate. I can tell you that I'm, I'm far more focused now on just enjoying the experience and letting life unravel and unfold. You know, I've got the regular challenges that regular blokes in Aussie, Australia have, you know, I'd probably drink too much at times and I'm trying to cut back on that, you know, but apart from that, I'm not a prick. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm, I'm just trying to go about my own business and trying to add value to the world through this podcast series and also through my journalistic pursuits, which is predominantly sports writing because I'll probably graduate as a sports sports writer. So, wow. Um, 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's sort of it's kind of fallen in my lap a little bit, but I'm as as much of a sports fan as I am a music fan, particularly rugby union. So that's my my game. So I um I, I'm doing the media officer work for the A on the women's sevens Western Australia Uni of Western Australia. I've got a team in it. Um, oh wow, awesome! So rug- I, I love the sevens. I have to say that's I'm not a big rugby guy, but anytime there's a sevens on the telly, it's like it's such a um. It's such an interesting format to me. Yeah, the, look, the global growth of the game is is surpassing almost soccer in some places. You know that, particularly in North America. Wow. You know the commercially yeah, yeah. viable markets, which is really important. So you've got a situation where I'm, I might have caught the wave at the right time. So I, I want to keep on doing it because I enjoy doing it and I'm putting the videos together and everything using Premier Pro, like we were talking about earlier for the girls. That's and cool. You know, Bond participate in the Queensland Premier Competition, which is the first grade rugby competition here in the state. And so I get to write all of that and I get to interview the players. And, mate, I hope it goes somewhere because, uh, to be honest, man, there's no money in music journalism and uh, I might as well do sports journalism because there is money there. There's, there's heaps of money in it, actually, in terms of it's a broad market and it's it's got a good out. You know, there's there's not a lot of, you know, watching a rugby game or being at a rugby game isn't exactly going to be replaced by... Uh, the streaming equivalent anytime soon, if you know what I'm saying. There's always going to be that need for people to uh, watch this stuff yep. live and also then participate in all of the various things that happen all around it, you know, watching the post-match interviews, all of the hype and the lead-up. You know what it's like in the AFL. It's the same thing, you know. There's, yeah. the, the game itself is just a sideshow to what usually happens around in the week leading up and the week afterwards. Um, it, it is just fodder for that, and that's what sport allows me to do, I think. So... I'd love to be a music journalist, mate, but it's just it's not 1986. You know, there just isn't the opportunities there these days. And I already am a music journalist, so. But <laughs> I just it just. I was going to say, yeah, you know, it's like when you can when you can have a podcast and talk about whatever you like um, with essentially anyone you can, you know, who's willing to participate. Um, then you know what a what a great thing to have access to. It's it's you know you're using the same set of skills, but just in a, I guess, in a different format. You know where it um, all comes from? You know where my interviewing technique, it's not even, I don't even, I don't even think I've got an interviewing technique really, but from my time at Telstra being an account executive, dealing with all these swinging dicks, you know, these heads of industry, these CEOs, <laughs> these directors and stuff who, some think they're really important, some are genuinely important, but it's come from having to build rapport and a relationship with them. I just use the same tenets in this. So, listening actively listening all of the time um so say for example with our conversation here i prepared about seven questions as i tend to do but i really just hope it flows and someone like yourself who's a great person to talk to because you've got a lot that you want to share always make for the best ones um because quite often i can speak to somebody and you can ask the most open-ended question not quite often occasionally you'll ask the most open-ended question and they'll come back with a one-word response and you think that was an that was a wor- truly a work of art that you could respond in yeah, one yeah. word to that open-ended <laughs> question. I'm almost impressed that they can do it, but they're nervous. People get nervous, you see, and, and I picked that up. You're, you're not a nervous guy. I can pick that up, you know, but some people do get really nervous, so you just try to ease them into it. That's why I don't have an official intro and an outro when I'm talking to people. Yeah, yeah. Just go. Um, no, that's good. It's long for Red light syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it's it. And and I'm, I've talked about this a little bit lately, but I'm, I've, I started the podcast really... Um, because I was really inspired by Joe Rogan and what he was doing. Um, and if anything, I'm trying to, 
I mean, if it ever, I don't think it'll ever happen, but I'd love to become the music version of him. So have all of these wonderful guests on. And I've got, I mean, I have, I've, with the exception of Doug Pinnock and Steve Harris from Iron Maiden and Billy Gould from Faith No More, I've spoken to everybody that I've wanted to speak to. All of my heroes growing up, I've spoken to. It's incredible position. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know when I, I mean, when I got the email from uh, Firestarter, it was like, oh, you know, do you want to, do you want to go on this podcast? And I much prefer doing podcasts to interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, yes, don't care who it is. And then when I, when I looked into it, it's like, ah, oh, cool. This is why am I not listening to this podcast? Cause these <laughs> are all my favorite artists and it's getting pumped out, you know? Um, yeah. so yeah, it's, you know, as, as you were saying there, it's, if you've got a, for, for me, the older I get kind of the more, the more I realize it's just like, man, just, if if there's something that you feel you're good at and you enjoy, just lean into it, you know, unashamedly. Just just do as much of it as you can without hitting that burnout level. And, you know, you do have to spend a bit of time figuring out where that is. And um, Jeez, I know for me point. where it's like... That's a really good point you've raised there, mate. That's, yeah, you're a smart guy. Seriously, that's a really good point you've made there because that's something I struggle with even doing this. You know, I did six interviews last night. Had a few fall through before wow. I spoke to you, um, and mate, it sometimes I I do fifteen in a week because you, you know you mentioned that I do pump them out. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I try to try to get as because I think this window is going to close, mate. Meaning that I'll go back into the ably employed workforce within twelve months, and I don't know how much time. And I'm you'll have only to be able it. to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And it's you know I think with with a lot of this stuff, whether it, whether you're a band or whether you're you know a YouTuber or whether you're doing a podcast, it's um you want to have that library of content where it's like, if someone discovers it and they like it, then, you know, as you, as you were saying over 400 episodes, yeah, get it. like yeah. if someone, if someone digs it, they're going to listen to the whole thing. I'm like that with podcasts. Like I will probably go through, um, like just, just out of curiosity. Cause I, I had a look at it yesterday. Um, I saw Marty Friedman had been on there and George Lynch had been on there. So yeah. I was like, yeah, this is, this is sick. But, um, uh, I'm, I'm actually just looking at a list of all the guests now. And the fact you had Jorn Vigo, uh, from Pagan's Mind on there. Yeah. It's like, that's what I'm doing after this. Cause I've got so many albums that that guy has been on and I've never heard him speak. I've never seen an interview with him. It's like, I love his playing. I love his production. It's like, Oh, how good is this? I can go and yeah. check this out now. He's a good bloke too, man. That was one of the few that I've done. That was grand final night, NRL grand final night. So I think I'd had, oh, about, wow. I think I'd had about four beers when I got onto that one there. So it's probably not my most cohesive podcast episode. But he was a, <laughs> <laughs> he was a damn good bloke though. And he was really easy to talk to because I was a big fan. I am a big fan of that. Um, oh God, it gets so many albums these days. But the one that he appeared on with um, Floor Jansen from Nightwish. Uh, was it Northwood? Yes. Nor- yeah, I think it's Northwood. Bloody good album. It's like, Foo Fighters stuff, but better because I don't really like Foo mm. Fighters that much. But yeah, man, he's Pagan's Mind, great band, and yeah, I've I yeah I started the first interview subject I ever did was another hero of mine, David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and um, oh awesome yeah, so he's he's in there, and I spoke to Trey from Morbid Angel's mother. I reached out to her, and I've got a good connection with wow. her these days. Man, I've, I've just, man, I just, I just try to be brave and reach out to usually people. What's really cool, man, is guys like George Lynch. Their agents come to me now. So, yeah, yeah. so I'm, I've, I that's was, when you know you're doing something right. Yeah, it surprised the shit out of me, man. Because I'm like you, I was like, 
what, the George Lynch, as in George Lynch, George Lynch? And he's like, you know, not I'm doing it over email, but he gave me a link. He said KXM, and I was like, it's George Lynch. Holy shit. Okay, so yeah. you got to pinch yourself sometimes when you're having these conversations because I listen to a lot of KXM and even earlier Lynch Mob, and, of course, I got into Dokken as well. And Oh, yeah. I just, remember hearing Dokken for the first time and just being like, this is what I need in my life. Yeah, great. And and Marty Friedman, too. That was really surreal because I think I've listened to uh, – his guitar playing, as I mentioned to him, as much as anybody, you know, uh, J.K. Lee, Trey from Morbid Angel. I think M- Marty's right up there. I'm, I used to, um, Megadeth in the 90s were my band. So I listened yeah, to Yeah, one of my playing. favorite quotes about music ever. I've got an old guitar magazine from like the late 80s or early 90s, and they interviewed Trey. And he said, our new album sounds like the space between thoughts. I remembered that one, and- yes. Yeah, and that's like I I honestly think about that quote every single day. It's like, what is that? Like, what is the space between thoughts? Like, that's yeah. one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. It's like, man, you're, what are you reading? You know, that's that's making you can't. And it makes when you listen to Morbid Angel, it's like, yeah, you can hear you can hear the the person the cre- the creative mind behind that. There's so much there's so much going on in his brain. Um, and it, it yeah. comes across in the sound of that band that's so unique. But you, know what um, he, you know what he puts it down to, according to his mother? He's got Asperger's. I didn't know that until I spoke to her. Okay, and my, my, my brother-in-law, he, he hasn't been diagnosed, but we suspect that he's got it because he's, he's got his issues, I'll say that. And, um, but Trey, she said that he said that the reason that he can do that hyper-focus thing that he does and really, I mean, he's the riff master, really. I mean, I think yeah. he's like Hendrix wow. to me. Like, I think in 100 years' time, people are going to be studying his music the way we study Mozart and Beethoven. I actually feel that strongly about Morbid Age. I know it's to some people who aren't fans and who don't get it, that might sound yeah. absurd, but he's he's just so good at what he does. And I even spoke to Bill Hudson. Listen to that episode if you want a, a really cool episode, actually, too. Oh, Bill. awesome. Yeah. I really like Bill's guitar playing. Likewise, man, he was so surprised that he had fans in Australia. So yeah, you do, man. It's uh, he's a champion of a guy too, Bill. Another really cool guy. But he's playing in I Am More, but he's playing the material. And I won't, I won't go into any detail here on what he says about Trey's playing. But listen to what he says about Trey's playing, and he's bang on point. You know, and he'd know. I mean, he's in I Am More, but alongside of David Vincent these days, playing the stuff. Mm. So yeah, he's uh, yeah. I mean, it's just yeah, this. This whole journey doing podcasting has just been so uh, rewarding. I've got to tell you, you know, it's uh, it's. I love, I do love playing music, but I think I like doing this more these days. You know that podcast. And you know, it's. I, I remember chatting to Andy about this, where it's like, you know, being in a band is very much a. It's a team effort, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's it it just when I realise that it takes place over a longer scale, because of the nature of collaboration. Um, and when I, you know, became more okay with that, it's like, oh, we're not putting out an album every year. Like, you know, we're underachieving or something. It's like, well, you just, just roll with it, you know? And it's like, that's life. And, you know, the often that's for the better when you're making art and you're making music. So there's that. But if I want to be hyper-focused about something and have something for me, it's, 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 you know, it's doing, doing guitar stuff. Um, and it, it's, really made me play a lot more guitar and I love playing guitar. So it's, it's win-win, you know, I have, I have the band thing, which is, 
you know, it's sure it, it takes a little bit longer, but ultimately the, the product that we put out is it's at such an, it's, it's at a level I would never be able to access on my own. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's the beautiful thing about it. That's why I keep doing it. And you know, why I really feel fortunate to be doing it with the guys I'm doing and we're all very much on that similar wavelength. Did you have to, you obviously, I mean, it's got it's an obvious statement, this one here, therefore question, but you obviously had to meet a few people before you met these guys, but was that journey interesting? Because I know my journey, uh, meeting other musicians, it was either a really cool experience, like the one I was telling you about with the guys in Velveteen, or it was really shitty. It was never in between. Is, did your experience be yeah. that one? Yeah, very much so. You know, I, I really got lucky where I met um, Cam, our drummer, uh, I think I was in first year uni. We were actually at uni together. We did never met one another. And um, through MySpace, which was the social media platform of the time, um, I got a message from a guy who is now our producer and engineer, Troy, just saying, hey, it looks like we like the same music. You want to come down and jam with our band? And I was like, oh, yeah, sounds cool. Like, I want to play in a band. And um, we, we all just kind of immediately clicked Um and I remember walking out going, man, these guys are like way too good. I'm not, I don't measure up to these guys. And um, we, you know, just really became good friends. And, you know, it was a thing where we had all these like hopes and dreams. And in reality, we got together every Sunday and we played for four or five hours and then we would hang out and eat Doritos and watch South Park and then <laughs> all go back to uni on Monday, you know, and um, it was, uh, no, we were never in a position to prioritize it. Mm-hmm. And then Cam and I saw Ryan doing a cover gig and it was just like, we had this moment of like, there's our guy, you know, that's, that's the guy, that's the thing, that's the X factor thing. Listen to the way he's singing, just look at, you know, he, he, he literally, it was like the heavens opened up or something. It's like, yeah, this guy's got everything we've ever wanted. How do we play with him? And, um, you know, we, we, we got, we got pretty lucky in that respect where it's, um, we actually started off as a five piece and Ryan was singing backing vocals and playing rhythm guitar and pretty much just happy to be playing some original music after playing covers for years and years. And, um, the singer didn't work out and the bass play didn't work out. And he just kind of slowly, you know, evolved into that role. And, um, the, as time's gone on, he's, you know, he's, uh, he writes more and more of the lyrics and the melodies now. And, you know, it used to be he and I would do a lot of that together. And often now it's all come in with really great fully formed stuff. And it's like, man, this is so much better than the stuff I had prepared. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, in, in some respects, you know, really just so fortunate to meet those guys. And, you know, we, we also had our fair share of, you know, trying different band formats, four and five piece and different members mm-hmm. and, you kind of, uh, you know, it's that uh, that shared trauma, I think, that uh, makes you tighter as friends. Oh, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely shared trauma of being in a band. It's a lot, lot like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I remember being in my twenties and being in bands that never made it out of the rehearsal studio, and we'd rehearse two or three times a week. And I've got to say, yeah. the only the single benefit to that was that your, your chops get really sharp doing that. Although it's not as much as I, I often think that a gig is worth five to ten rehearsals meaning that yes 
Me too. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't well, don't know how to quantify it, but it's worth a lot more than a rehearsal. But you've got to be rehearsed in order to get gigs. So, so you've got to start off and do that. And I think that that's that. Yeah, that shared punishment in a rehearsal studio when your fingers are bleeding or your voice is gone because you're just not feeling it that day and you're trying to sing. Um, yep. And you're just over it and you end up getting bloody disgusting McDonald's on the way home at 12.30. <laughs> you know, it's all a part of the Precisely. experience. Precisely. Yeah. Cool, mate. All right, well, look, just um, before I let you go, I've just had a look at yeah. your YouTube channel, man. You're a bloody rock star. You've got 25,000 subscribers. You've got a heap. Is that how many It's a got? bit scary. It's taken on a life of its own in a lot of ways. So, um, it's yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's a little bit of work, but it is a lot of fun. Yeah, well, you've got a shitload of subscribers, man. Well done for that. Yeah, you've got 24,325 subscribers. I had it and then I lost it, so I got it back. Great. And, mate, your videos... The most important thing is, mate, outside of, like, because likes don't count for shit these days, um, even though you've got zero down, down, like, thumbs down and 166 likes on your most recent one with your Plexi uh, 6550, there's a ton of comments, 79 comments. Mate, you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, and it... You're doing it. Yeah. You can't you know, do any more than that. You figure it out after a while, so... <laughs> you know. It's uh, it's awesome, dude. So, so you got your YouTube page, which is called. I uh, just type in Leon Todd. I think that's how I found you. So there you go. Yeah, um, yeah. What about the band Facebook page? Is it just pretty easy to find Ragdoll, or is it a bit of an apostrophe in there if or you, something? Yeah, it's Facebook.com/slash/RagdollRock. Um, we're on all the streaming platforms. We're on Bandcamp. It's RagdollRock.Bandcamp.com, and um, <clears throat> just about every every other sort of platform like that, and. You can look us up on, we're on Instagram as well. That's a fun one because it's so visually oriented. And um, again, it's, you know, you can you can put up all your dumb tour photos of, you know, you and your tracky dacks eating <laughs> ice cream at 3 a.m. in the morning and people love it. So, um, so yeah, that's where, that's where you can find, find the band on there. Um, and uh, like I said, we're in the process of finishing up this, what's going to be another album, hopefully out at the start of next year and, I think we're in Melbourne uh, for Melodic Rock Fest in March, start of March. So hopefully we'll be doing a few more East Coast things around that one as well. Mm-hmm. Mate, good luck with it all. And and look, I, I, I rarely make this often, man, but you're an interesting guy. You've got a lot to talk about. If ever you want to come on the podcast again and our paths don't cross through uh, Firestarter, mate, just reach out to me, man, and we'll have a chat because I really appreciate it. Oh, I, would, I would love to do that. Yeah. I and really, it- really had a good time. Yeah, I'll give this a plug on, on YouTube and the band page and stuff like that as well. Thank you, brother. That means a lot. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, it's been a great chat, man. I can you, You're a music fan first and foremost, and you're a bloody good musician. You're a good conversationalist, and you've worked out that you've got to have an online presence through your YouTube profile there, man. So, man, you've got it all going on, onwards and upwards for you. Thanks so much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I look, for, I look forward to it. I'm going to go check out the rest of this podcast now. No worries, yeah, please do. And look, I'll, I'll get this one up tonight, mate. As I say, I, I don't edit anything. I just put it straight out awesome. there. So um, I'll get it out, mate, and I'll just link you in on... Do you want me to just um, send it to you or just, like, you know, link you in on the socials with, via your... Um, uh, yeah, just just send it to me and I'll, I'll share it around and, um, you know, hopefully there's a, there's a few people who are interested in, uh, interested in checking it out. Okay, sweet. No worries. Will do. Can do. Legendary, mate. Have a great night. You too, brother. No worries at all. Thanks a lot again. Thanks again. Cheers. See ya. See ya. You've been listening to 
the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List online, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. That interview subject was Leon Todd from the Western Australian-based outfit Ragdoll. Thanks so much for listening.